The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 39 of The Things We All Carry. Back in November, I had the chance to sit down and speak with Ian. Ian is a firefighter here in Virginia. His story begins in Temecula, California, where he lived until he joined the Army after 9-11. He served in Iraq as a forward observer attached to an armored battalion out of Fort Hood, Texas. What this means is that he had the chance to direct fire and hear things go boom a lot. He left the Army to pursue firefighting again and eventually found his way to Virginia. His story is one of combined traumas from childhood to the Army to firefighting. He discusses his time at the Center of Excellence and the Mental May Day project he is currently working on. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Ian. How you doing? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm going to let you start a little bit with your background, where you're from, and, and how you ended up here a little bit, and see what we get to. There we go. Originally from Southern California, born in Long Beach, California, and grew up in the Southern area from Riverside down in Temecula is where I last lived before making the journey. 3,000 miles this way. Mom, dad, everybody's still out there, but just me and my girl over here on this side now. All right. So how long you been in Virginia? Almost 12 years, I think. Moved out here in 2011. My ex-wife was wife at the time, promoted with her government contract gig. That transferred us here. And then I found out the hard way once I got here that none of my stuff transferred. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a fun, fun fact. So that was fun. Learning that the hard way. I should have did my research like she told me to. Hardhead. But I ended up government contracting, fell back on my military career a little bit. Was training soldiers and counter IED and going after the dudes that build all the roadside bombs. Yeah. There are plenty of those going on. There were plenty of those going on, at least. There's probably still some. Born in in Southern California. Mm -hmm. What, What was family life like in California? I'm a second generation fireman to my dad. And my mother. My dad actually continued the career after the military. Just retired last December after 44 years. My mom was one of the first batch of female firefighters in the U.S. Air Force back in the 70s. And once they add me, that kind of, I think, ended her career a little bit. Mom and dad mode. But sister's in the medical field. My brother's a mechanic. Lives out in Arizona. But for the most part, it wasn't bad. Dad was in California. Mom was in North Carolina after they split. When did they split? Uh, when I was five. So you bounced around quite a bit or what'd you do? Yeah. So I stayed with dad for a couple of years. My grandfather passed away in 89 and I just dealing with the grief of losing my grandfather. I was a pain in the butt to my grandmother, unfortunately, because my dad was a young firefighter at the time. I think he was going to paramedic school at the time. His medic certs only got like three numbers in it for the state of California. They decided my dad was like, well, I don't want you growing up without your sister. So ships me to North Carolina. So I ended up bouncing back and forth. A couple times I did, uh, was a kindergarten to second grade in California, second grade to fifth grade, North Carolina, sixth to ninth, California, and then 10th to graduation in North Carolina. Yeah. That's a bit of bouncing around a little bit. And then back and forth for holidays and stuff like that, I assume. Uh, yeah. Give or take mostly like the summer times I'd come out with my dad's, my dad's funky schedule that I live now. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just had my sister and I announced sometimes we'd come together, sometimes she'd stay. So we kind of, we had two separate childhoods practically. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. How do you end up in the fire service? My dad took me to one of the picnics they had. They got a brand new fire engine. And back then the fire department partied for everything. And they had a, the unveiling of the new fire engine. And I remember when he put me on it, I was like, I think it's like one of my earliest memories. I was like three or four. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. So throughout all of grade school and middle school, I was literally that kid that said, I want to be a fireman when I grew up. And I really meant it. Got all the way through high school. And I had the opportunity to go to three different colleges with scholarships and decided to go against it. I was like, no, I just want to be a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, I probably should have took it, but uh, moved back to California and really started just hitting the ground, trying to get on. And out there, it's very competitive where just to get hired by any city municipality, you have to get into an EMT school, get nationally certified. You need to get a FIT 101 class, which is like an intro to fire behavior. And then you've got to go pay out of pocket to get a CPAC card. And that card's like good for one year, but it, back then it was 120 bucks. But I had your photo ID on it, but you had to have those three things to get into a state accredited Firefighter One Academy through the state of California before you could even go apply anywhere. And that academy, is that out of your pocket as well? Yes. All right. Yeah. The amount of guys that they're getting when they're coming to the field are just a bunch of dudes that are just hard, strong to get in the fire service. And then you got to choose from all those guys. So I followed my dad's route and went with the forestry side with CDF at the time, California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Later on, now Cal Fire. You just needed a, at the time, it was a 67-hour wildland academy to get on a fire engine. And then I think it was a first responder certification. Gotcha. So, yeah. Pretty simple, but that's what got you in the door. So <laughs> when do you start? When do you start in the fire department? Uh, so April or March. Yeah, March of 2001 um, is when I got in. Um, started in Riverside County, California, volunteering at uh, Sun City Station 7. And uh, that's, that was my introduction, got in and it was a 55 and older community. So every call that I was running was just a lot of geriatric calls. And right. then we had a freeway that rolled through. So we would get some pretty cool accident. Didn't sleep much at night. I don't know how I made it as far as I did on no sleep, but I think it was a lot of monsters and breakfast burritos. So you just got a lot of experience out the gate. And then was it like six months into my, into that first year, 9-11 happened. Okay. We just got back from like call number seven after midnight and uh, turned the TV on. And back then you could wear bunkers in the firehouse. So I'm rolling around in my bunker pants and making coffee and getting ready to start making breakfast for these guys and uh, turn the news on in California. It was like five o'clock in the morning and uh, turned the TV on and everybody saw what we all saw. And uh, I had two guys from our house that were on task force six that deployed that day. So they were gone and we just kind of watched it. And throughout this process, I got a buddy of mine who was in an ROTC program at a college. And I don't know if he was doing well on his flight exams or what it was, but he was starting to talk to the military and just thinking about enlisting. And of course they got him with the, hey bud, if you got a friend, we'll send you guys together. And I had tried to actually join the Marine Corps after high school and thought I was failing the ASVAB. I was like, why do I keep getting denied every time I go to MEPS? And uh, later on come to find out, apparently you couldn't join the Marine Corps with eczema. With eczema? Yeah, because you, oh. you can't get the smallpox shot, apparently. All right. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, we'll I go was with like, that. Really? Okay. So the Army saw that and goes, oh, we know why you got denied. We'll go ahead and sign that off. <laughs> yeah, we want people. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah, we need people right now. Lo and behold, I joined the U.S. Army in 2000. This is 2002 is when I joined and 
shipped off to Oklahoma and ended up being enlisted as a uh, forward observer. Right. What's a forward observer? So we're like the stepchildren of the field artillery and the infantry because we work with each side. Nobody really wants to claim us, but you get to go out ahead of the movement and find enemy targets, whether it be building or soft targets and call in artillery attacks. Cool job. You get to bring a lot of rain and make it rain pretty much. Yeah. Different uh, kind of rain. Different kind of rain. And uh, so went through school in Oklahoma, did all my boot camp and then my A school there. And then uh, graduated, I think it was like August of that year, and then got stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, for the 4th Infantry Division. I was with uh, 316 Field Artillery, but I was assigned to 167 Armored Battalion. Okay. So as a guy who has uh, artillery in his back pocket, I'm assigned to a tank yeah. unit. Right. Do they want my rounds or do they want to shoot their yeah, own? Yeah, right. That was uh, definitely a headache at the time. But uh, we went straight to the field for... Man, I can't even tell you. Like it was all the way until Christmas. And when you say field, for people that might not have military experience, field just it, you're talking training. Yeah. So yeah. Fort Hood is the I think it's still the largest military installation in the U.S. And it is just it's wide open. They've got areas out in the prairie or whatever you want to call it, where you can call in artillery that's you know miles away right. to fly over your head and hit targets downrange. And you'll never walk out in that area because there's unexploded ordnance that hit the ground exactly. and never went off. Very large area. And we were out there playing soldier for three months. And then I got to go home on leave. I actually went back to North Carolina, visit my mom. And then I think it was New Year's Day I woke up and 3rd Infantry Division was on the news getting spun up to go to Iraq. Okay. And I was like, huh. That's when you knew. <laughs> yeah. Got a phone call of, hey man, where are you? And. I'm like, oh, I'm in North Carolina. And they're like, okay, you need to get back more. We got stuff going on. So I got back to Texas and we loaded everything up. We had to go down to Corpus Christi, Texas. We put all of our military stuff on trains and sent it all the way down to the Gulf. And then for two weeks, we were loading these gigantic cargo ships with all of our tanks, trucks, Humvees, you name it. And uh, got all those on and a select few guys got to go on the boat, got their sea time in the army. And we got back to the hood and started packing up everything. And then it was like, okay, we're going this week. And then everybody go get their anthrax shots. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, stand down. And then the next week, all right, we're going anthrax shots. Classic military. So yeah, hurry up and wait. It was <laughs> yeah. definitely, Classic. definitely in full bore. I think I ended up getting I was almost like six rounds, I think of anthrax so it was just like oh this is awesome hopefully my kids don't have extra fingers which that is nothing compared to six rounds of anthrax <laughs> exactly jesus right <laughs> we uh, watched the whole invasion of baghdad happen on the news in the cafeteria at fort hood still at fort hood and we're like are you when are we going to get in the fight and i'm living out of a duffel bag at this time and then finally it was like all right we're going we'll come to find out i guess our boats were up in the mediterranean and fourth infantry division was supposed to come from the north didn't happen for us so they had to reroute the boats down to the gulf of kuwait and then we show up two weeks behind the fight and we offload as fast as we can, load up as fast as we can. And then all of us just go hauling ass in the desert. Got up into Iraq and had certain areas where we had people waving at us. And then we had other places where there would be people when we rolled up and then they would just disappear. Yeah. Ominous. Ominous like, as fuck. All right, cool. So yep. every here on the back of my neck is now standing up. We met resistance here and there, but our, our commanders were like, well, hey, there's this airfield up in Bakibo, Iraq, which is 35 miles northeast of Baghdad. Okay. And they're like, we want you guys to go take this airfield. We load up early in the morning, 
make an assault on this airfield. Nobody there. All right, well, cool. This works. And they're like, all right, we're going to make home here. So we ended up staying in Bakuba for the whole year. It was supposed to be a six-month deployment. And that six-month deployment turned into a year deployment. So nobody had cold weather gear and Iraq does get cold. It does. <laughs> Most deserts do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it got cold and wet quick. It was kind of, it was dry. We had little things pop off here and there, but nothing too significant. And then we turned into a police force and then it was going door to door. And that's back when, you know, the roadside bombs before they were called IEDs started popping off. So yeah, just had those and made it through the desert. Just talking about roadside bombs is an episode of this stuff in, in itself, probably. The fact that they're always lurking out there and, and trying to guess what is and what isn't, just assuming everything is. Yeah, we had the visible aspect of an enemy when we rolled up there. We actually got to see the guy in the uniform and, okay, cool, we have an opponent. And then it went quiet and these roadside bombs started popping off and it was just like, you've got a threat. Every time you go out the wire. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere and everything is yeah. a threat. You're looking at once used to be a dead dog. Now you're noticing the red and blue wire coming out of its butt because mm -hmm. he's packed with C4. Yeah, it was a total mind fuck for the most part coming out. And now you're having to inspect trash piles. Yeah. Yeah. Pucker factor was, it was there every yeah. time we rolled out. I, I can imagine. Actually lost our company commander, George Wood. He, I want to say, I think the anniversary is coming up this month, but yeah, he was hit. He was in his tank and was out of his commander's hatch and took an IED to the throat. Gee. So yeah, it, it was getting us. And when you're in a tank, you don't think that you know, you're going to get affected by a roadside bomb. Yeah. Yeah. So that was definitely the, one of the first of the shock and awe for my own personal walk that got me. So you spent a year in the desert, but do you go back after that or do you come home and that's it for your, for your deployments? Not it. So we got to go home. We actually were the, the first set of soldiers that got to come home for two weeks Okay. at the time. And we had an incident that happened prior to this where we kept getting RPG, rocket propelled grenade. And it, this guy was being very effective. He was messing people up and uh, it was on this certain stretch of highway and it was very uh, remote. There was no houses. It was just, it was fields and we couldn't see where this guy was hitting us at. So our people at B decided that they wanted to send out a bait vehicle and I drew the short stick. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let me be the mouse to your cat. Yeah. It ended up being like six of us. It was like, because I had fire experience prior to the military, they made me an honorary combat medic and gave me the whole backpack. But you weren't a medic going into I was. Everyone has some basic EMT yes. skills in the army. I get that. But yeah. you're not a medic. You're not a combat medic. Yeah, completely. I've got IV bags and I've got bandages and I had a baggie of tampons. You never know. <laughs> you never fucking know. I, just, I got no girls with me. What is this for? And the guy goes, look, if it can stop them from bleeding. To stop the bleed. It can stop a gunshot yeah. wound. So I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah. Good point. Duct tape it. Roll on. Yeah. So it, it's myself, the actual medic. And three other individuals and then one of my sergeants. And we're in a 113, which is like a tracked small tank troop carrier. You right. Know what I mean? So we got all the lights on and we are hauling butt down oh, this highway. Hey, look at us. Yeah. Hey, look over. Yeah. Look over here. So we're rolling down. We've got an Abrams way out in front of us and got all of his lights off, scanning the scanning the area. And then I got we got another tank way behind us. And then behind them is like a big troop carrier with a bunch of infantry guys. We haul butt down this highway and thankfully nothing happens. We didn't, yeah. get, we didn't get the guy. He must've saw the tank way out in front of us. So we roll up to a traffic circle. It's gotta be like two o'clock in the morning. 
And we set up razor wire, which is kind of like barbed wire. It's looped out yep. and, we, and we've got it in a chicane pattern where the vehicle has to pass through, but it slows down and they come around and we'll check the vehicle and they can drive on and keep going. And we're just looking for insurgents. We're looking for, I believe at the time we did have a curfew in place for the locals. And, uh, and we had an incident that happened a week prior where a vehicle approached a checkpoint and it ended up being a vehicle IED and it, you know, killed some guys. So our heightened sense of awareness was up a little bit, but because of the area we were in, I will say my guard was dropped a little bit because I was just kind of like, we've it's been dead here lately. Complacency kind of set in a little mm-hmm. bit, so especially after driving down this road and we didn't get anything. So I'm point man. I got my one buddy behind me and then I've got my other buddy across the street and um, everybody else is back with the vehicle and, and this car approaches and it was a local taxi cab. And the taxi cabs in, in Iraq are orange on the front and back and then they've got like the white in the middle same exact car that rolled up on this checkpoint the week prior vehicle approaches and i'm point man and i'm waving the guy forward and uh, he slows down and i'm like okay go and pull my weapon up to the ready and so now i'm pointing at the car and i'm like hey man let's go and he backs up really fast mm-hmm. throws on the brakes and turns everything off and i'm like okay it's about to go down yeah. So I have my night vision goggles on. I put those on and I'm trying to look in the windshield, but it's getting lit up from the lights on our vehicles. So I really can't see anything. And there was like a slight noise and then all hell broke loose. Every weapon was discharged. I can vividly remember the 50 cal walking up the hood of the car, making rounds on target through the windshield. And it was like a shock and awe. And this wasn't even the first time I had seen gunfire. Like I'd been in multiple incidences prior no issue at all with me firing my weapon. And this time I didn't, I didn't open up. I'm like, well, whatever's in there is done. And this is the one that kind of stuck with me because the next thing I heard was like this blood shattering scream from this woman. And I'm like, oh man, okay, what did we hit? And my, my XO and one of the platoon sergeants comes walking up and he's like, who gave the order to fire? What happened? And it was, there was a lot of confusion. And he's like, hey, Sebastian, come with me. I'm like, okay. So I go running up there and there's this car and it's a family of six and shock and awe hit. And all I could think about was, I'm like, I got to go grab my bag. So now the fireman kicks in and I run back, totally forgot the Constantina wire was there, did a tuck and roll over to that. One of the sergeants was like, what was it? I'm like, all I saw was kids. And he just kind of like froze. I walk around the back of the vehicle. And the medic is balled up in the corner. And I'm like, hey, we got to go. He's like, what's up? I said, like, grab your bag. We got to go. So we go running back up there. About this time, all the infantry guys that were in the troop carrier come up and they're helping me move people. And unfortunately, the driver was, he was KIA. Crazy thing was is that the two women, the two adult women in the front, not touched. Hmm. It, it was wild. And uh, the three kids in the back ranging from nine to I think eight months old. The nine-year-old girl, not nothing on her. The little boy had some, from when the glass imploded, he had some fresh uh, flesh wounds to his back. And then the, the young girl, the baby girl, had a lack on her forehead. And she was vomiting in and out of consciousness. And um, I just started literally just delegating people. Hey, right. you guys need to hold wounds on this. I grabbed the baby and I was checking her out real quick. And then I gave her to my platoon sergeant. 
and then called the nine line. You guys, I'm sure you guys have all seen like the nine line t-shirts and stuff like that. That's an actual like check off to get a helicopter to come fly out to you okay. to pick up your patient. So needless to say, I went into fireman mode and did all this triage and we got these people out of there. Went to bed that night and I slept. It was really weird. I actually crashed. But the next morning it was just like WTF. We're supposed to be here to to us and at that moment i was having a real hard gut but typical military fashion form hey man this is what happens in war these things and we kind of just kept going about our business nobody talked about it and uh, there was a whole spiel on the army side of things and they checked the boxes off and we drove on but i then started holding on to the fact that if it was a bad call i didn't fire and i could have gotten somebody killed like I was focused in on that so much that I didn't do my job that it wasn't until later that I realized I was like, no, dude, it was probably a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing that guy with the 50 cal was a bad shot too. 100%, 100%. And the other two guys that were firing as well, I'm glad they met. Actually, correction, the one guy, he got it because it was this way. But yeah, so that was, that was the caveat. They sent me home for two weeks, off beaten path, freaking... My buddy of mine that was holding on my bag for me while I was gone ended up uh, finding my checkbook at the bottom of my bag. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I come home and I'm like, all right. My family in Southern California, we all go out to Ocotillo Wells for okay. Thanksgiving. And it's just Disneyland for dirt bikes. It's out in the, the Imperial, uh, actually Riverside or San Diego County, out in the desert. And we just play around on dirt bikes for a weekend. Huddles up, motorhome. So, of course, my buddies are giving me crap. They're like, you're really going to go home to go to the desert? And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm not getting shot at. So it's a little different, but my plan was to buy myself a brand new CRF 250. Cause when they started making the four stroke, I was like, Oh, I want to try it. Found out the hard way. My bank account was drained. Buddy of mine was yeah, quite a buddy. Yeah. And this is the guy I joined with. Oh Jesus. Yeah. So I've come full circle, but thankfully enough, mom and dad lived in town and dad and I had a conversation and got my money back. Caveat a little bit, but that one got through my two weeks at home. And then I went right back to the suck and our battalion XO got hit by an IED. He ended up coming back pissed off with a really cool raspy voice because it hit him in the exact same spot. It hit my, my captain. So then it was just more or less just every day was a unit was getting hit. It was either happening a truck in front of me, a truck behind me. And at the time I was rolling around in a soft top guy and Jeep doors on my thing. And it was like, okay, guys. We're coming up on April. We're going to start getting everybody, get ready to demobilize to go home. And we had a, it just, it, the IEDs kept popping off more and more. And it was just like, okay, dude, if we're going to go out for another mission, like I need to up armor Humvee. And he was giving me crap. And my captain finally got us one. And we ended up having an incident where an up armor got freaking racked. And I was like, dude, just give me a break. And we got back to Fort Hood and rolled into, the ceremony type thing. And it's the first thing they do before you get there is they take your weapon from you. Mm -hmm. like you got to go straight to the armory, turn your weapon in. That's been with you for an entire year. Okay. I'm supposed to switch that off. Yeah. We go to the movie theater and our debrief pretty much was, Hey, you're going to have bad dreams and nightmares. It's be to be expected, but you'll be fine. Drink water, drive. Here's a motor. That was our, our debrief. And then I did one more year in the army. I tried to go the actual, I tried to go to selections to go to special forces route. 
And um, Big Army was like, we're going to stop loss you if you do re-enlist and then you're going to go back to Iraq and then you can go when you get back. Which I thought was funny because usually it's the other way around. Right. If you want to go that route, they'll send you. But it wasn't the case. I opted to get out of the military. Started volunteering with the city department that was right outside the gate. Was actually trying to get hired with um, Austin Fire Department. Okay. So it was cool that last year in the Army, I could literally go do PT with my guys in the morning. And then go home, change into my fire department uniform, and then try to get back into the swing of things. But Austin didn't work out, and I ended up moving home and got picked up with Cal Fire, Riverside County, in the fall of 06, fall of 06, spring 07, somewhere around there. And uh, ended up meeting my ex-wife at the time. We started dating. and I got hired with the fire department and was assigned to a uh, mountain battalion out there. So single fire station with the U.S. Forest Service attached to it. And then like we had a Johnny and Roy style medic squad. Okay. But I had my first kind of, I guess, panic attack. First day on the engine, we got back from dinner. We went on a hike that morning and um, like nice 20 minute hike. And we would do, cause it was a wild PT in the morning is just Nomax, your pants and top with your web gear, your wildland gear with your fire shelter, carrying your own water. And then we'd carry a hose pack with 200 feet of inch and a half. Mm -hmm. And we would just grab a shovel go on a 20 minute hike and you're stepping it out. And plus you got to wear these wildland boots that have these big heels on and just kills your, kills your calves. Right. We do that, come back to the station, do our normal day. I'm like new rookie trying to get back in the swing of things. And uh, we go to dinner, get back. And I started thinking about things and got off the fire engine and my chest was pounding. And I'm like, what is this? And I go over to my new captain and I'm like, Hey cap, would you mind touching my chest? And Typical captain response. I'm not touching your fucking chest. <laughs> no, for real. I need you to feel this. Does the two fingers and then does the full palm on my left chest and goes, what the shit? Medic squad backs in. They do a 12 lead on me. I'm in SVT at 238. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm 25 yeah. at the time. And they're like, what? Like unprovoked. Transform me to the hospital. Get down there. Uh, my dad was on duty that day. Takes the fire engine over there with his dudes. And they clear me. I vagled down on my own and got myself back down to normal stat normal rhythm by the time I got to the hospital. But that was like the first, first like hiccup. And then I couldn't do firework shows for a while. Right. And then, you know, so I'm with my wife and we have our first daughter. And you meet your wife. You guys met in, I think you said 2007. Yeah. Right? So I met in 2007. I was the EMT at the motocross track and she was the event promoter. So okay. she put on all the motocross races at the track and yeah, I saw this chick rolling by in a, in a lifted Tundra with the whole <laughs> off-road pre-runner kit on it. First time I saw her, I think outside of, out of dirt where she was looking cute, jacked some dude's four-wheeler and mobbed over to her and got to talking to her. I'm like, hey, is that, so is that your dude's truck? Is that your boyfriend's truck? She's <laughs> like, no, it's mine. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And then you know, the rest is history. But yeah, so met in 07, got engaged in, I think, 08. And then we were married in 09 and then had our first daughter in 2010. So things moved pretty rapidly. Moved very fast. Yeah, moved very fast. We, it was looking back on it, we were living in organized chaos. Like it was a level of chaos for sure. Chaos, did, were you both bringing to chaos or? Yeah, so she had dealt with a death, two deaths in her family prior to meeting me. Unfortunately, she lost her dad on her 21st birthday and then lost her grandmother right after. So I know... She was dealing with her own demons in a way, never really brought up, but looking back, there was that. And then I'm dealing with all my post-traumatic stress from Iraq that uh -huh. I didn't know that I had. Because coming out of the military, I had a lot of guys that 
drank, drugs were heavy, prescription medication, the VA was throwing those things out like they were Pez dispensers. Yeah. And I was just chill. So I thought I wasn't a heavy drinker. If we had a party, there'd be beer in my fridge from the party before. Never drank on my own, but it was my, my behavior was a little inappropriate. I would, I'd always be the guy to say certain things or act towards women in a certain way that would definitely borderline the toe the line with being appropriate or not. And once I got with my, my girlfriend at the time, I started, I guess, coping in a way of the erratic behavior of other females and not knowing until later, but I was getting, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. So having the eyes of somebody else validate me was all the reasoning I needed. Right, wrong, and different. It was, that's how I was doing it. And so I got caught, lied through my teeth, ended up still proposing because I was trying to find the normal. I wanted to be normal, but everything outside of me was chaos. So we get married and once we got married, we had our daughter. We got moved up to Victorville, California, which is like an hour and a half away from where all my family friends were. So now we're- So you add some isolation in. Yeah. yeah. So now we're isolated. We're living up in the high desert. I've got the ghetto bird outside my house every night. And I see the cops walking around looking for whatever bad guy was in the area. And I was circling the drain big time already. And I was looking for more outside validation and I would get caught time and time again, and just not knowing why I was doing what I was doing. We then get the opportunity to move to Virginia. She was promoting with her job. Hey, I think this would be good for us. Let's move and try to work on us. All right, cool. All we did was just pack up all our BS Yeah, and move it 3,000 miles and then unload it here over the course of six years. And isolate even more. Isolate even more. No family. Foreign country, basically. Yeah. No friends, really. And get here, find out the hard way. None of my fire stuff transfers. So there's a lot of resentment. A lot of arguments start to happen. We definitely knew how to put each other into the red. We knew mm -hmm. exactly what to say, what to push. And, uh, you know, it, it got, it never got physical, but it got heated. And um, we had an incident where she was, uh, we got into an argument and I tried to go, I started volunteering when I got here. My EMS cert was like the only thing that transferred. Mm -hmm. And I was dad mode to a brand new baby. Go from working nonstop to now I'm the dad at home and I'm with this child all right. day long and love my baby girl to death. But man, she was a handful at the time. So I'm doing this and my only outlet is going to run calls. And that's all I wanted to do. I needed to get therapy but this was how I was dealing with stuff. So I would volunteer and she saw it as me going to not, me not working. I wasn't providing. Mm -hmm. And she'd get mad and we'd go back and forth. But uh, got into an argument where she was in my face, I was in hers. And I think her and I were at our boiling point and I flexed my chest to get her out of my face. And uh, she was just kind of, hey, I'm calling the cops. And I was like, no, you're not. Just go. So she leaves. And five hours later, like it wasn't even immediate. It was like five hours later. We'd already like, I'd already gone to dinner. You know, my little girl had just started walking and I bathed her, fed her, put her to bed. And I sit down to write her an apology letter because I'm, I'm seeing what's going on with me, but just can't explain it vocally. So I go, I'm like, all right, I'm going to write it down. And I get a phone call from the sheriff's department. Hey man, did you get into an argument with your wife? Yeah. You mind if I come talk to you? Yes, sir. Come on down. So a dude shows up and, you know, it's like, what happened? explaining the frustrations of moving and trying to figure the stuff out. And he goes, did you ever touch her? I said, no, I never touched her. And he just, you know, I bumped, I chest bumped her just to get her out of my face. 
And he's like, you did what? I said, yeah, it was just chest bone trip. All right, well, that's all we need. Go ahead and put your hands behind your back. What? Right. He's like, yeah, dude, here, you can flick your wife on the forehead. You're going to jail. California, however, you can call the cops and then decide whether or not you want to press charges. She was just trying to get documentation and it backfired. So we were able to get over some hurdles of our own internally, but at the same time, it caused more problems. So it was just, it was this continuous chaos over the course of, you know, three years, I think. And then we, we ended up losing a kid and we were pregnant and I was about to leave at the time. And we had this child, you know, always standing in marriage for a kid's always a smart idea. Did that. And we ended up losing the child and it was traumatic for the two of us. I get to witness everything with her and, and it was hard for me as well. And that's when things switched, but unfortunately everything for her never did. And then- um, What do you mean things switched? I fell, I finally kind of got comfortable. I fell in love with her again and I was really trying to have that normal lifestyle. We ended up building a home. I had just gotten a process with the department I'm with now and things were moving up. Like everything was looking really great. And we had our, our second daughter, beautiful baby girl, healthy as could be, and just very smiley, bubbly and the whole nine. And life was good until my past caught back up with me. And fortunately, my wife had found out some other things and we never healed. And mm -hmm. she kept moving as much as I was trying to make it normal and work on things. She was done. And we broke up on my birthday in 2019. And um, she left me at Nats Park and it wasn't yeah, her own, her deal, but it, it broke me because I was still married. Like I was very much in love with her, did not want to be divorced, didn't want to be up by myself, but she left and I, everything spiraled down the drain very fast. And I'm one of those guys where the job never bothered me. Military, the things that I did never really came back up. I had the one incidence with the car, I think for obvious reasons, but for the most part, a lot of things weighed off me. It's just second generation fireman. You don't cry. Right. I never went to the hospital as a kid. Like it better be falling off or profusely bleeding for my dad to get me to go. To the don't hospital. tell me you need help unless you're dead. It, exactly. hundred percent. And that is how I was raised. And so here I am at 37 years old and I've held all this stuff in for so long that her leaving was literally the final pour to the pitcher, like the needle, the, you know, straw that broke the camel's back. Exactly. And we went into self-destruction mode. Every, I had moved out got my own apartment, was still trying to save the marriage as much as I could. But unfortunately there was somebody else already there in my place around my kids. So now as a protector of your children, that's now up for question. The fact that I have a failed marriage, that's another thing that was weighing on me. I couldn't be the dad there all, all the time. Somebody else was stepping in my shoes. So self-destruction kind of kicks in. Um, Hypervigilance kicks in. I move into an apartment and realize this is the first time in my adult life that I'm living by myself. And you want to talk about every ghost that you tried to bury before mm -hmm. or didn't think that was there? Reared its ugly head. I was thinking about calls that I... Didn't think I had issues of when my mom and dad split, um, when she moved back to North Carolina to be close to her family, the trauma I had from that, that I didn't know I had. And 
my counselor, once I started getting help, realized that you're you're feeling this way because of when your mom left. Right. What's my child got to do with this? You know what I mean? It came as a shock to me too, <laughs> bud. Let me tell you, it came as a shock to me too. I'm like, no, we're talking about right now. And she yeah. goes, no, honey. No, no, no. no. You, it's cute. You think you yeah, are. Yeah. That's, that's great. Let's that, talk about when you were five. Yeah. Wait, we're I, not I don't here. want to. Yeah. We're not here for five. What do you mean? But it, it's wild to see how much of your childhood does impact your adult life. And I never really saw that. And just trying to trying to be that strong kid and do this on my own in Virginia. I have no family to back up on. I mean, right. All my best friends are in California. And I talk to these guys daily. And they've got their own personal opinions. They saw the writing on the wall ever before I did. They're like, bro, this marriage is a disaster. Like you guys are toxic. But you never saw or I never saw it. So that was literally the outlying factor of me leading up to, you know, my suicide attempt. And which is is crazy. It's almost three years ago this month. Got to the point where I'm by myself. The brain really takes over. And before I move on, I always saw suicide as a cop out. I saw it as weakness. I'm like, my mother unfortunately dealt with some issues when she was younger where she would overdose on pain medication. Mm -hmm. And just I always saw medication as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. and suicide was the easy way out. And I was sick like a dick anytime I heard anybody do it. And fast forward, here I am. And my brain is flat out telling me, hey man, your children will be better off without you. Your ex makes plenty of money to take care of them and the new dude will be okay. Crazy to even hear out loud. And it got to the point where I was drinking when I didn't have the girls. And then when I had them, I was depressed that it was just the four of us or three of us. So I was never happy, but I'd go to work and put the face on as firemen do. We just go right back to work and I'll just do our job. And by this time you're hired and you're working as a career firefighter again, but yes. this time in Virginia, I think we glossed, glossed yeah. over it a little bit just to make sure people realize that you are hired and, and yeah. you're working as a firefighter. So I'm at my second, so I made it through my rookie year. I, you know, I had some hiccups at home, but made it through the rookie year. And then got asked to come to um, a specialty house. Get to the station, great crews, like 18 people on duty a day. You've got five pieces of equipment that are fully staffed and you got a lot of personalities. And you've got people ranging from 20 plus years on the job mm-hmm. to I think myself and two others at the time only had three years at, at the time with the department. So it was a massive window of people, but that is where my destruction of myself and my marriage happened and a great crew they they really stepped up when it needed to happen and yeah just the the drinking and all this and they were checking in on me and seeing what I was doing and I was filling a void at one point and just they're trying to figure it out to help me out really rallied behind me and I had the suicide attempt I tried to kill myself on my motorcycle was at a bar just started crying at the bar I'm like what are you doing dude like really this is it. And I was like, this is just too much. Got on the motorcycle and was making a left-hand turn onto route one and decided to just throw it in oncoming. Let's see what happens. And they got three cars, dodged me, honking their horns. And it was like a, a concrete median the whole way up the hill. And I started clicking gears and uh, got all the way to the top of the hill. And there was one area where you can make a left-hand turn. And th- that's where I pulled the bike back across vaguely remember it but that's the only thing i logic that i have is that's where you must have did it because mm-hmm. i was still in a haze um next morning woke up i'm at home 
thought it was a dream. I was like, did that really happen? But then the whole bottle of Jack was gone. The thing was practically full a couple of days ago. So just, wow. And it was weird. There was like a weird high with it. And I really didn't know how to digest it. A weird high from the attempt or from the aftermath of the attempt? Like from the attempt. Okay. Like it was weird. It's hard to explain really. It was just like more, I was like more in a daze. And then it was like, okay, you got to go back to work tomorrow. Exactly what I did. Went right back to work. Had no business being there. At no. All. And get to work. And uh, we start running a bunch of calls. We had to pluck a dude out of the river like early in the morning. Started running a bunch of accidents. And then we, we had a um, show and tell at an elementary school. And I'm standing up there and I'm in full gear on air. And I'm looking down at these kids and then it just, it hits me. Bro, you almost made your girls not have a daddy for Christmas. Are you kidding me right now? Unbeknownst to me, my driver took a photo of me on the stage. We get back to the firehouse and I'll get to the photo. We get back to the firehouse and we start making lunch and the wave hits me. Dude, you almost hurt somebody. Are you kidding me right now? And it just, it hit me hard. Teared up and I got up put my plate in the dishwasher, went straight into the office and my lieutenant follows me into the room. And the truck lieutenant, he comes in and he goes, dude, what's going on? And I just broke down, told him exactly what I did. And they did everything textbook. They, they witnessed that a firefighter was in the hurt box. I unveiled the information and put the engine out of service and I went upstairs to headquarters. That all went great. I ended up getting sent, which was probably the worst thing for me because I had really no support system. It was also Veterans Day weekend as well. And here's, here it's we are. Veterans Day weekend. Here we go. For an appropriate time to record this story. A absolutely. And just, I started thinking about all my guys and the ones we lost. And I'm just like really in my feels. And I mentioned something to somebody about just taking pills and going to bed. And she made a phone call. And thankfully, I've got a buddy of mine that does live out here that I grew up with in California, works for Homeland Security. And he came and grabbed me. And it was under his watch for a couple of days. The same lieutenant that helped me out gives me a phone number and goes, hey, man, I really think you need to call this place. And uh, call, it's the International Association of Firefighters Center of Excellence over in Maryland. I had no clue this place exists. Working out here for since 2016, and this was back in 19, I had never heard of this place. I was going to say in 2019, not many people did even who come up around here. Yeah, I had no clue this place. I'd heard vaguely, I think like a firehouse magazine. That mm -hmm. There was talk of something like this, but never heard of it. And at that time, the stigma of PTSD within the fire service was, is if you get diagnosed, you're going to get fired. And we actually had a guy in our department that it, who had been let go, ended up being a multiple bunch of reasonings, but I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to lose this job. I can't do this. So I go to this place, not even with the intention of staying there. And as I'm in the room talking to this lady down in Florida, my my female partner is out in the waiting room telling everybody like, hey, look, you guys got to keep my boy. He's not doing well. Try to get him to stay. So every time I come out, I'm meeting a firefighter from somewhere who's a patient at this place. And they're like, hey, man, glad you're here. Are you going to stay? We really think you should stay. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I live down the road. Like I've got kids. Right. I'm coming up with every excuse under the sun. Oh, yeah. Not to go here because yep. none of us want to look in the mirror at this point. And this dude from New York and a lieutenant from Seattle Fire pretty much sat down with me and started joking. And it was that same firehouse unit that was like, bro, you should stay. Trust me. And I'm like, you know, they're like, well, hey, come to the graduation and check this out. So I go to this graduation and they're all in this. They've got this area at the center where there's a bell there. 
and they all get their IFF coin with a serenity prayer on the back mm-hmm. of it. So I'm watching this and I'm at my lowest level. I'm just, I'm numb, I'm drained, emotional. And I see these guys like high on life and they're all talking about their story. And I'm like, I want that, I want that to be me. Mm-hmm. And pretty much my partner was instructed like, hey, take him home, go pack a bag and then bring him back in the morning. Don't leave him. She had to make her logistics. And I went by and said goodbye to my kids, told them daddy was going to go to work for a while, going on a work trip and um, told the ex-wife where I was going. And I ended up doing like 48 days. Place was phenomenal. They were able to go all the way back to my childhood, bring up some stuff of just the stressors of being a, a second generation fireman that you don't think about and trying to prove yourself. And then as a you know male, we don't cry we suck it up and drink on or drink water and drive on. So it was just breaking through all those avenues. And then they were to help me break down my event in Iraq that I was still holding on to. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but when my daughter was born, the first time I held her, I instantly flashed back to that girl in Iraq. Yeah. And like, I knew the problem was there and it would just, it would show up throughout certain things. But I wish that I'd gone to a place like this in the beginning of my career. And I'm now just a huge advocate of talking to new firefighters now and just bringing this up because one, the culture's changed. We're not able to joke around the way we used to because you know, all these different rules and SOPs and G's now. So just trying to make it an environment where you've got to bring that family life back into the fire department. Right. You've got to, I can't tell you how many officers I know that don't even know that their driver who they've been working with for three years is married and or has kids because guys don't talk and cell phones have really jacked up the fire service. You're not wrong. Yeah. And I'm just as guilty because it's really easy to escape Yeah, and look down at your phone. And especially if we go on these calls, we're getting rookies now. I mean, we've, I think we've had three classes graduate like really fast because we're just trying to fill people, but just trying to get these guys to, I'm sharing my story, talking to these newer, you know, guys and girls about, you know, bringing that kitchen family talk back and just using my past experiences to hopefully help another firefighter. Cause it, it's sad where the stats are. You've got more firefighters now killing themselves versus the actual job killing us. Mm-hmm. Like that's a huge problem. Yeah. And it, it comes back to almost the culture in a way. I think we need to not lose sight on the fact that a number of those suicides are job related anyway. It's the job that are creating those issues for us. And, Facts. and that, that suicide is a, is, a, is a result of that. Yes. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons fire departments are afraid to admit how many people are killing themselves. Yeah. Cause the organization that collects the data, that's all voluntold. Mm-hmm. So there's really no telling what the actual number is, yep. which is scary to think about. Nope. Yeah. Just, it's a little out of hand and we, you know, with my one buddy in Arizona, Dan Morrow with Fuck the Stigma, 100% behind that. Right. And just talking to each other, making it a point in the morning to sit at the kitchen table just a little longer than checking off all the boxes. We'll get to them, but if your guy's having a bad day and your first reaction is to write him up, are you really yeah. helping that dude or are you feeling the fire? And if your first reaction is to write somebody up and that's your first interaction on something, yeah. then you failed in the first place. Facts. And if you don't have that open communication with and starting from your your rookie firefighter to your senior guy and keeping it at the lowest level until it needs to get moved up you're not going to build a rapport with anybody no. so it's the communication not disappearing in the firehouse um going to every corner of the station after lineup and disappearing because you're not going to know and that's not the fire service i grew up like my dad man like going to his fire station as a kid all my uncles were at the table 
and they were all joking and I'd see these guys off duty. And this area is different in a way because you have a lot of guys commuting. Yeah. I can't tell you how many guys I have that live three hours away in Pennsylvania yep. and Delaware, New Jersey, Virginia beach. Oh, you could live local and still be three hours away here. Fact. Yeah. So yeah. You live in Fredericksburg. It still takes you an hour to get to Fredericksburg. Yeah. It's just, it's trying to change it up to the fact of, look, you don't got to get together every day, but like everybody gets off in the morning. Yeah. At least get together somehow. Go get coffee. Go yeah. get breakfast. And just, if, if you're having an issue with a call, 20 bucks, somebody else is too. Right. And people try to argue me with that a little bit where I'm like, they're not bothering me. I'm like, really? Yeah. You can't tell me the call you ran yesterday morning, but you can tell me your last bad call. Right. That's a bruise, man. Yeah. Like, that's a bruise to your brain. And yeah. you get a bunch of bruises to a muscle, it's eventually going to need to get help. Yeah. Instead, what's hard with this is you've got so many bruises on that muscle that it's hard for people to see it because when you break your arm, you see the cast. But, okay, that got injured. But when it's your head, man, like it's it's hard to get that understanding. And that's interesting because I just had a, actually yesterday's show that was released with Cody Shea. And I don't uh -huh. know if you've seen the movie that he made. He's yes, I did. Yep. When, in his episode, he talks about the fact that the state of Washington has OJI. So the traumatic calls and the PTSD will qualify you for an on-the-job injury and you'll get that short-term disability. You, know, you have to tag it to a certain call. Right. They won't do the, they won't do the uh, cumulative PTSD. So you have to say, okay, I got it from this call. And a wow. doctor has to verify it, but you do get that time to heal. That's amazing. And, and, I, and I've myself and a couple of friends or a couple of coworkers have, have said the same thing. This is an injury. When you, Big time. When you get a traumatic call and we... I know that every call is different. Every call affects somebody differently. Right. But I think we all can recognize a traumatic call. Yeah. And I, I still, I'll, I preach it to this day and I'll keep preaching it, that when that happens, I think that crew needs to be out of service and needs to be taken care of immediately. Mm -hmm. Not, we'll wait till you get off shift and go see somebody. Yeah, no. You're already behind the power curve at that exactly. point. Exactly. It's already, it's already been indexed incorrectly in your brain yeah. by then because you're going to get shitty sleep that night and it's not going to get, it's not going to get to where it needs to be. Right. And I think that's probably the biggest struggle I think with all of us right now is that it's the after effect and we're not, thankfully my crew recognized that I was, my officer recognized that I was having an issue and like he did all the correct steps, but there were some things prior to what I did that probably could have signified a little bit. So I'm currently working with a buddy of mine at work where we're trying to use the current lingo we have mm -hmm. already with Mayday and um, calling it like the mental Mayday. And you can't help that person, but it's just like in a Mayday situation where somebody's injured or hurt, you can get to that person and then pull that person out and get them to right. the correct facility they need to go to. Yeah, It's the same thing with one of us. And there's different levels and tiers where you don't need to get all the brass in, involved. It could be as simple as, hey, bro, pour a cup of coffee, go walk around the firehouse. No, I just told you that story leading up. You asked me yeah. how the show came about. And before we came on air, I talked about my buddy recognizing Dude, something's up. What the fuck is going on with yeah. you? And he pulled me aside. He, he gave me a book to read and, and the rest is history. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. And it's awesome that he did that. And just trying to get guys to not blow it over. It's all these different things that we do on a daily that somehow has turned into a normal, but you prime example, I can even put myself in this category, like social media with all these dating apps, you've right. got these guys that'll sit at the kitchen table yeah. and right in front of you, like, I'll oh, project this out. That is a red flag. Mm -hmm. That is erratic behavior. And it's turned into like almost a normal. Right. Which is like, 
how dangerous that could be at all different levels of age appropriateness. Um, is it a catfish where you can get beat up? Right. But it's a lot of these small things where firemen that I feel like have gone through stuff can be the, the voice of reasoning on yeah. a lot of these things, but it takes the dudes that either go through it like this, this is perfect. You we're opening up and we're talking about it and trying to help others not follow the same path. And it's, <sighs> I think it's definitely needed because we don't get to joke the way we used to. I think that you have to be very cognizant of what your crew and what those people around you are for that day and for that, for whatever yeah. the situation is. Cause I know that the situation I'm in at work with the crew that we have and the familiarity we have with each other, cause some of us are going on five years together, which is in my department is unheard of. We know what we can do. We know what we can get away with. And people come in and go, okay, I know what these guys are doing. It's, it's, they're doing them right now. Yeah. Um, but we're also aware of it when other, when we're out and about, and I, I want to go back cause you, you mentioned it's knowing your people and I firmly agree with you. It is knowing your people. And, and I'll go back to it's again, it was me the other night. I was in a bad mood at work. I had a lot of shit going on, but he comes up and he sits down and he gives me a look and I looked at him. I was like, oh, we're going to fucking do this now. <laughs> he goes, you're either going to do it now no. or sometime. Cause yeah. what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And so that opened it. the door and that's what we need. That's yes. what we're missing. And we're, we don't get enough of that especially in the smaller houses where there's yep. four people where they really should know each other like a book big time. But for some reason it's, they know each other less. And I don't know if we can attach that to today's society. I would imagine because if you go looking for someone, then you're going to find them out in the bay feet yeah. kicked up on the front bumper and headphones in and they're watching a yeah. video on their phone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's where, you know, the communication needs to come back in. I mean, my my girlfriend now amazing girl i've been with for the last two years almost two years she makes it a point like man you can just talk to anybody i, I don't understand how you do that and this is a person that works in a public setting but and she doesn't like to do it she'll do right. it for her job but that's about it yeah and it, i tie that to we we do patient care daily yeah we have to go into a stranger's home well, i try not to do patient care too much but yeah <laughs> anyway yeah, we all do <laughs> <laughs> just nature of the beast yeah but we walk into the homes of complete strangers and i think we're like one of the few professions where we have complete strangers hand us their children it's like that that says a lot and yeah. the fact that we can't do that once we get back to the firehouse right throw we can't do that for each other yeah right. and it's it i don't know at what point it teeter-tottered but we got to get back to yes talking let's go back to center of excellence because i think we got away from it for a bit you learned a few things. You learned about the PTSD. Yep. You learned about how you, you, how others and yourself were coping with your trauma. And so yep. obviously drinking was a big one for you. Women yep. was, was the other big one yes. for you. But then you talked about, obviously there are drugs, there's porn, there's gambling, mm -hmm. and, and there's all kinds of vices people deal with or use for coping mechanisms. Yes. What were the things that really helped there? Because, and I think you hit on one that, and I think it relates to what we were just talking about when we talked about being around the table. And I've heard it before, that fire pit Dude. At, at the center of excellence yes. seems to be, that's the spot where more therapy is done than therapy. 100%. Uh, so describe that a little bit. Yeah. the This is crazy to think. You're at an inpatient medical facility. Yeah, it's a bunch of brothers and sisters from the fire service, but you're still at a medical facility. The guy that runs this place, Mark, I wish I remembered his last name, former first sergeant, agreed and allowed the guys to have a fire pit out mm -hmm. back. Gets all the wood trucked in for us and... You go through seven hours of classes a day. By the time you get out of this place, you're smelling emotions. And you can see color or smell colors. Yeah. The whole yeah, night. It smells like purple. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that fire pit, man, almost seemed like 
more therapy happened down there than it did in any of those classes with the people with degrees and the whole nine. You had guys that would open up more and talk about certain things. A lot of guys like to use letters as a way to cope with their stuff. So, you mean written letters? Yeah, like written letters. Um, this one guy, uh, fireman in Milwaukee, it was really cool. He, uh, I guess he had lost his dad and there was a big struggle there. And he had wrote a letter from his dad to himself in the point of view from okay. his dad. All right. And he then wrote a letter back to his dad. And what was crazy was the letter from himself to his dad was written in his handwriting. And unbeknownst to him, the letter that he wrote from his dad to himself was in capital letters like his dad does. Huh. Like it was pretty wild. Right. And the therapy from that alone, I think really, you know, helped him. And there's a lot of others that they would write these letters and then they wouldn't open them. They just burn them. And it was this very therapeutic way of letting go mm-hmm. and releasing whatever they were holding on to. Because I think one of the biggest quotes that that resonated with me was, is use your past as a reference. Don't allow it to become a resonance. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, I, I'm not gonna say I'm perfect. There's still some things with me that I still struggle with in that area, but I'm definitely working on it a lot. More. But it was, that place was amazing on a lot of different levels and opened up with the medication thing. Cause I got diagnosed with PTSD, um, depression, anxiety. I was like, really all of this? I, but right. Looking at the big picture. Yeah, man. And yeah. you go through this trauma group and the clinician they had at the time this guy looked like your weekend LARPer. He was like, <laughs> I, boom, I, I got that vision right so in my head. The yeah. dude had all the rings and yeah. just like the way he wore his clothes. Was like you, you play Zelda somewhere, man. But the unbelievable tr- treat that he had or the trait that he had was he was able to break down military guys very well. And within my group, we had myself, a sniper, a really hard cowboy from Wyoming. And we'd all been in the job roughly around the same time. I'm at 21 years now from when I started. And uh, this guy was able to, on a whiteboard, literally write down from childhood all the way to the present and really break it down to the fact of, yeah, you're thinking this way because of right. past XYZ with father and, and what men are, are expected to be like. And this is why you're thinking, which was wild to see on a board in front of you. And you had a guy literally taking notes and everything word for word, and they hand you this packet. And you get to go swallow that later. Yeah. So yeah, very helpful. And I had a great experience at this. One thing, define or talk about the swimming pool terminology, because you mentioned it to me before. So my buddy, Adam Bartman, that I'm doing this mental mayday with, had said something in his presentation that kind of stuck with me. And he uses the pool, the swimming pool analogy, where every firefighter, when we get out of the, out of the academy, is towing the line at this pool. And just imagine this pool in the middle of January and you've got snow on the ground and this pool is, you're using it figuratively as your career and you want to make it to the other side of the pool. The way we were all taught getting in the fire service is, you know, imagine taking that first step into the water. Uh What's that water going to feel like on your foot? It's going to be cold, sharp. It's going to, it's going to just imagine that old salty captain behind you going, Hey man, this is what it's like keep going forward. Yeah, come on in. The water's, water's fantastic. Right. And if you don't remove your foot and warm it up, it's just going to go numb. Push forward again. And that's that next call that that affects you. And before you know it, if you don't get your foot out of the water or, or swim to the side of the pool to, to take a break, you're eventually going to be in the deep end treading water and you've got a weight on you heavier than you can even expect that's pulling you under. And the fireman terminology is, is no, I can handle it. I can do this Mm -hmm. because that's what we all expect of ourselves. Right. And 
the sad thing is we can't. You, you need that safety line. You need that help. And if you don't, if you don't get to the side or get somebody to help you out or put a wetsuit on you figuratively, you know what I mean? With therapy or whatever it may be, you're going to drown. And I've, there are guys that it's, I, I don't want to make it sound like everybody who gets into the fire service is going to get to this point. And it's all like on what support structure you have. And there was a gentleman that was at the center with me who was a deputy chief of operations of a very large fire department. And this guy had been retired for six years. Great family, two adult children, full grown, had a house in the city he was from, had a vacation home out on the beach with a very nice boat in the water and had a great support structure. The team that he worked with, the crew that he worked with, like he was able to vent everything he needed to vent and never had an issue until he retired. He retired and then it was like he lost all identity. He had, he never did anything for himself as far as your own personal stuff goes and lost who he was and started drinking. And that was his coping mechanism to drown all those demons. And his wife was the one that called his mayday and was like, honey, you need to go get help or you're going to, something bad may happen. You may lose me or the kids. Thankfully he did and everything's good and dandy now, but it's wild when it hits you because it. There was another kid there that was like literally like a month or two on the job. And he had a guy off himself at the fire station door. Yeah. Like two o'clock in the morning. So shock and awe right out the gate. Welcome to the fire department. Right. Versus a guy who had a very long career in a very busy department and was able to cope very well healthy wise. But it was up until the end and just learning that we tend to want to do so much for others. And we rarely look at ourselves and help ourselves out. Oh, yeah. And one of the therapists made it a point. She was like, hey, look, like. How many guys in this room have come home from work? You have plans that your spouse or partner made for the day and you're loading up to leave and you get a phone call from somebody else saying, Hey man, I need help with X, Y, Z. And you've dropped everything you've done to go help that person. Right. And like the whole room raised their hands. That's who we are. We're helpers, but we are really bad at putting the boundaries up and saying no sometimes and looking at our own stuff. Yeah, no's a healthy word. Yeah. Oh, and it's learning those boundaries and putting those up because we all know that turned into a fight for that individual because I'm just as guilty of it. Right. I've been there and it's like, dude, how much stuff could have been, how many bad situations could have been a lot better if you had said no or done something for you and just I make it a point now, like once a month to do something for me. You know, That's, and, that's a good, good and, policy. Yeah. And I feel like I've became a better dad for it in the morning on the way to work. I don't have the radio on. It's quiet. A little peaceful time. Very peaceful time. It's okay. You're leaving dad mode and go to chaos. Yeah. Let's just chill out. It's chaos indeed. Where are you today? How are things? Things are good, man. I I don't think there's ever a dull moment, unfortunately. My oldest daughter, I don't know if I mentioned this to you the other day. My oldest daughter was diagnosed with trichotillomania. And that is an anxiety disorder where you pluck all the hair off your face. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I guess, that dopamine dump that you get from that that action which is releasable and she is she's currently seeking treatment it is a hard thing to grasp because you don't want to point the finger at yourself or your spouse right ex-spouse because your little girl's struggling so it's dealing with that and using my past um struggles to show her strength and kind of hey, look dad went and got help there's nothing wrong with it it is progressed to her head and that is just hard for any parent yeah. Oh yeah. To hold on to. That is, I would say that's my biggest struggle right now that I deal with daily, but uh, she's progressing where she needs to be. She is, uh, we're hoping that she'll be home for Christmas. Okay. That's what I'm hoping for. 
But other than that, man, just getting back from, took a little vacation, a little me time. That was pre-planned before her thing popped up and my ex-wife and I are just trying to co-parent as well as we can. And after the divorce, we wanted to go home. I yeah. really struggling to not go back to my old apartment. And I'm thankful that I didn't, I couldn't leave my girls no matter what, but it was, that was a, a hard struggle to, to re- recognize, Hey, look, like this is home and you got to make it work. Right. Your girls are here. So it's, it's panning out. I got a great girlfriend, no complaints there. And just trying to get my career back on track. I, I feel like through all of this, I, I definitely probably say I probably let some people down. I probably didn't rate or meet some expectations. I think that some people had of me. And when you go through something like this, your brain's not firing at hundred percent and mistakes are made and choices wrong and different are made. And, uh, you know, I, I think I may have let some people down and just, just trying to trying to show proof through, through actions versus the apology style. Like I'm trying to route that way mm-hmm. and hopefully I'll have relationships mended at some point. Cause I respected a lot of people that were there for me. And I think I may have let them down, but you go through something like this, you don't know what you're doing. And I just hope those people know that. Sorry if I upset them or not, but uh, just trying to make it better. All right. Let's talk about my questions. I always ask. Yes, sir. Uh, what's an everyday carry for you? Something you're going to feel like you, you can't go without if you don't, if you don't have it, you feel naked without it. Everyday carrier. Good question. My girls, I think I'm just having them in the back of my mind, like everything that I do at work, uh, just trying to think what I can do better to, to be a better dad for them and just know that I'm doing everything in my power to make them proud. All right. So your everyday carry is a thought. Yes. All right. Yeah. What about books? Do much. I wish I said I. Did. I always ask about what a, a book recommendation to give the audience. And, and if you don't have a book, it could be maybe someone to listen to, maybe uh, music. It could be whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely jam out. I like all sorts of metal, Five Finger Death Punch and Metallica and Disturbed and Godsmack, those kind of things. I'm trying to think there was one that kind of resonated, resonated with me a little bit. And I, for some reason, can't think of it off the top of my mind. Right? All right. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when I read it, it sucks. I, don't, I got diagnosed with a learning disability as a kid. So okay. like, I have trouble intaking. So if I hear it and visually see it, it'll stick. But talk I, about, talk about your buddy with the, with the fuck the stigma. What, what's that about? Yeah. Fuck the stigma is literally, I don't know if you guys get on Instagram and pull that up. My buddy, Dan Morrow out of Arizona started this little deal and it's literally just, just fuck it. Really. We need to talk more and he'll put up inspirational things on his Instagram page. I know he sells like these little stickers for three bucks and I've got one on my other coffee cup, but it's just like getting the talking points out there and just recognizing what we do deal with and that it's okay. Right. And we need to talk about it. It's not going to go away if we don't, it's still there and just, we need to recognize it and help each other and move forward. There's a recommendation. There you go. See, that was simple. (laughs) Yeah. um, If you ever talk to him, send him my way. I'd love to talk to him. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, if he's interested. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. Thanks for coming out, man. I appreciate Thank you, you coming me. and, and sitting it. down with me for what's about an hour and a half now. And so that okay. was a great conversation. And awesome. uh, hopefully the rest of your day goes well and we'll stay in touch. You as well. Thank you, sir. Cool. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.